most of you guys know that I coach cross country for Kalani High School, and yesterday was their uh, was the state championship, and so um, you know I was thinking about this, especially with this year's the the girl who won the state championship this year, and I was thinking that if if we didn't actually like run the race, if we just had all the runners line up and then we voted like who looks like the best runner you know who looks like they would win you know and then based on the vote we would let them win right I can almost guarantee you wouldn't have picked this girl because she wasn't that tall she didn't look that you know muscular or strong and and there were many others you might have chosen instead of her but as we tell our runners, that's why we run the race. We run the race because it doesn't matter whether you look like a runner, can you run? Well, there's a lot of things that are like that. They look a certain way, but it doesn't mean that they are what they look like. Um, do we know the difference from looking at something, whether it's gold or gold-plated? You know see that ring up there and again I don't want to cause marital problems so don't be doing these tests at home just to find out if your spouse is a cheapskate or actually bought you the real thing but there are tests you can run as a matter of fact you can you can go on the internet and now and you can see like oh here's different tests you can run to see if something is is gold or gold plated you really can't tell by looking at it Look at it, it looks the same. It's the same coloring, same, you know, same texture on the outside. Looks the same. You might look for the, the stamp and it might say 24 karat on the stamp. But stamps can be faked too. Gold or gold plated. Well, if you really wanted to know, you'd have to test it. And there's different ways to test it. You know, there's acid tests, you can use vinegar different things to show how pure that is or is it just on the surface same thing has to do with Christianity it, how can we tell if someone is is really a Christian how can we tell because there's a lot of people who who you know, they look like Christians, they talk like Christians, they do things Christians do, but do we really know? And then there's other people who don't look anything like Christians, at least not what we might have pictured in our mind. And the same question is, how do we know? How do we know if something is pure gold or gold-plated, pure Christian or Christian-plated, it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, we don't want to go around like saying, you are, you aren't, right? Makes it hard. And yet, there's some sense that, that we need to. There's some sense that, that we need to know. Because if we're going to be the church, right? If we're going to be the church, if we're going to be a community of faith, the Bible says there will always be those within the community of faith that really aren't truly believers but they're there and in some ways we're kind of glad they're here because where else are they going to hear and experience 
Christianity, if not in the church. So we're kind of glad they're here in a way, but at the same time, do, do we know who is who? Do we really know? Or do we just kind of accept it? You know, last week, John gave us one test, and of course this is like, you know, the, the, like the worst test. Like if, if you wanted to figure out if your gold ring is pure gold, I mean, you could melt it down. And you could probably sort it out, but then it's not a ring anymore. Well, the test last week was kind of like the meltdown test. How do you know? They left. They left. They left and they, they took people with them. And we talked about how if we think about that and don't really understand what Christianity is, that sounds kind of harsh. And we, you know, and we don't like that because all of us, I don't want to say all of us, most of us have left at least one church. And so maybe we're asking like, ooh, this apply to me. Well, it does apply to you, but only in this case. It only applies to you if, the, if you've, one, actually joined the church the way the Bible says you joined the church. It doesn't mean you went through the membership class. It doesn't mean that the church voted for you or accepted you in as a member. But the Bible talks about being part of the body of Christ in a similar way to like marriage. That there is a sacred vow that you make as an individual to the church and the church to you as an individual. That we believe God has brought us together. Now, I'm also gonna guess that most of you, when you joined a church, it was not explained to you that way. Because frankly, especially smaller churches, they're just happy to have anybody. Hey, you want to join? Great. Can you spell Jesus? Yes. You're good. You're in, right? We're good with that, right? And, you know, a lot of times we get into this, we don't want to judge. We don't want to judge. So as long as someone says the right things, it's okay. So a lot of times we never get to this, this thing about it. it's a it's a sacred vow that's really not sealed by our words or our commitment, which is John's point. That relationship is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he says when that is what your church is, or that is that community that you joined, and you joined it in the same way, there is no way you will ever permanently leave that. Unless, again, you moved somewhere else. There's no way you'll permanently leave it. You can't. That bond is not up to you. It's the Holy Spirit holding you together. Well, again, that's kind of the meltdown test. We only find out after the fact. So, is there any other way to know? Well, there could be. And John keeps appealing to them. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And the reason we need to talk about this is because, again, even the world, they hear Christian, they hear Christianity, they, they don't, they're more and more, especially in our society, which is rapidly becoming a post-Christian society, where people don't even 
know the basics of Christianity and we're going to become stranger and stranger and there's going to be more and more things made up about what we believe and what we do just like in in the time of the first century in in that in the, in that society that's changing like that which is radically different from you know 10 20 30 years ago the world needs more and more to see authentic christianity they need to see people who are so deeply and thoroughly changed, deeply and thoroughly changed by God inside and out in such a way that they are deeply in love with God and deeply in love with one another. See, if you just think it's enough to be deeply in love with God and everybody will get it, Everybody else will see that and see that as that's the great testimony. You personally have this. It's a powerful testimony. I'm not, don't get me wrong, it's powerful. But as I've said before, every religion, every philosophy, every faith system you can name can produce one good person. They'll look at you and say, Christianity worked for you, that's great. But then they think about their Buddhist friend. Buddhism worked for my friend. They think about their atheist friend. You know, atheism worked for them. Everyone can produce one good person. I have yet to see, and sadly I have to include Christianity in this, I have yet to see a philosophy, a faith of any type that produces a good community. A community of people who are so in love with God and so in love with each other. And that I read about it. You go back to Acts chapter 2. You read about it. You look at the end of that, that, that second chapter. It's, it's amazing. You read about it. These people that they're so... It, they're so in, changed by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that, that they're getting together every day. I don't hear this from you, so maybe you guys are just not saying it, but maybe it's because you don't think it. But when my dad was a pastor in Oklahoma, small town, about 600 people, there would be this farmer dude, and at noon, Church started later, about 10.45. At noon, he would walk out the back door. And my dad talked to him one day and he goes, church shouldn't last past noon, right? I'm gone. It's noon, I'm gone. We have a hard enough time just getting together once or twice a week. They were, they were so in love with God and so in love with each other that they were getting together every single day every day and it talks about they were devoted to God's Word they were devoted to the teachings of the Apostles so I read about it and maybe maybe you've had like moments in your life when it was you know you've experienced that you remember a time when when your church or or a group within your church was that way 
so in love with God, so in love with each other, that this, this community developed that was unlike anything you'd ever seen before. And what does the Bible tell us? It tells us when the rest of Jerusalem sees what's happening, thousands are coming. Because it's something they've never seen before. Ever. And again, it wasn't just, it wasn't just this individual devotion to God. Oh, that was there. That had to be there. But it's that it resulted in this community. And so sometimes we look at that and, and here's, here's my thing that I had to ask myself, because I read some of that stuff that they did, and I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to do all of that. You know, they sold, sold all their possessions and, you know, brought the money to the church and held it, you know, in common. I'm not sure I want to do that. But sometimes, if I put aside the details for a second, and I just ask this question, would I want my, my life, my weeks, my months, my years ahead to be centered around a community of faith, a community of disciples, a community of Christians who are so in love with God and so in love with each other. Would I even want that? Would I even want it? Or would it cut into my me time? You know, would it cut into the times when you know, I just want to sit back and watch some football or just go do something to kind of entertain myself. Would it cut into my career goals? Would I even want it? Well, I'd like to say yes, I would. But I don't know. But I know this, I know this without a fact, whether I want it or not doesn't matter. What I know is, this is God's plan. God says, I'm going to reveal to the world who I am, how I believe is the best way for people to live. I'm going to reveal it in how Christians love one another. That's how I'm going to do it. And I've said it before. I think it's a crazy plan, but it's his plan. Doesn't matter whether I think it's good or I want to do it. It's what God says, it's what his word says. This is the plan. It's not enough just to share the gospel and say words, though it's important. We need to share the gospel. Evangelism has to be at, you know, part of the heartbeat of the church. But the world needs to see what happens when the gospel gets a hold of people and brings them together. Brings them together it, to the point where even if they cannot accept the gospel, they wish they could. Even if they, they don't believe, they look at what you have and they wish they could somehow get it some other way that they could be a part of people like that too. Are we presenting to people 
are we presenting to them something that reflects who God is? That's what the world needs. And so John, 2,000 years ago, he's writing to this church that's, you know, these people have come in, and we've talked about it before. They're, they're teaching a, a, a different faith, a different Christianity. And apparently they've been talking about it, discussing it, probably debating it, going back and forth over it. And at some point, some, if not all of them, have just taken off. But it's bothering the people who are still there. Because they like those people. They were their friends. And they don't know what to do. And so John, who they all respect because... You know, he's the elder statesman of the church at this point. He could be the only guy left from the ones who actually were around when Jesus was around. He writes them this letter to help them understand the difference between true and false Christianity. And so we come to chapter 2, verse 28. And he says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Before we jump into this, um, let me just give you a little bit of a biblical principle. Those of you who come on Wednesday night, you've heard this already. Um, so this is reinforcement for you. But it's this biblical principle that we find in, in, in Scripture. And it's this, this principle that says, like begets like. So one kind produces the same kind. And we see this in nature. If your dog gets pregnant, you don't expect kittens, you don't expect monkeys, you ex I mean, you expect puppies, you expect dogs, right? If you plant a mango tree, you expect mangoes. You don't expect apples, lemons. It's because like begets like. It's a principle. You find it in the Bible. And whether you can make some case that that doesn't always happen, that's not the point. In the biblical author's mind, this is, this is absolute. Like begets like. So when he says in two places... Born of him, in verse 29, and children of God, in the following verse. When he's saying that, he's not just using this, this kind of cool imagery. He's, not, he, he's actually trying to say that you, if you're born of him, like begets like. You somehow get something from God that can only come from God. 
It's one of the reasons in the early church when they were kind of debating over who Jesus is and the early church was so convinced that Jesus was God himself is because he was called the Son of God. And it's the idea of like begets like. And he's the Son of God in ways that we aren't. Because it talks about him being the Son of God from before time, before the foundations of the world. It's an eternal thing. So we, we can't be God the way, you know, the Son of God is God. But make no mistake that John's point here, when he says, born of God, children of God, is to say, God has imparted to you something about himself. He's given it to you. You are like him in that way. So, what do we see in this text? Well, the first thing he tells us is, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The hard thing is to understand, what is righteousness? And again, we talked about this on Wednesday night, and a lot of times we use this word, and we don't really know what it means, and we kind of just mix it up with other words and and all. But, But let me give you kind of a simple definition that I, that I think can hold up in, in, you know, without you know, much contradiction. But it's, it's righteousness is, is doing the right thing for the right purpose with the right heart. Doing the right thing with the right purpose with the right heart. It doesn't, it's not good enough just to do the right thing if you do it for the wrong purpose or with an impure heart. That's not righteousness. Righteousness that he's talking about is righteousness that's, that's thorough. It's to the bone. It's to the DNA. It's everything that we are. It's righteous from, from there all the way out to the expression. It's a righteous act, a righteous objective, and a righteous heart. And you might go, well, what do you mean by right? And again, right is this idea that it's God's. It's doing the acts of God for God's purpose with God's heart. You understand why he says you have to be born of God to do this? Because if we're not born of God, we can maybe do part of it. We can maybe get the acts right. You know, we can do the things that, that look righteous. So we can look like gold. We can look like gold. We can do the things that look righteous. We might even get, we might even get the, the purpose right. Like, oh, I'm doing this to help this person because I really want to help them. Or I'm doing this to help this situation because it needs to be helped. And so we might even get that part right. We can get part of it right. The place where we struggle is getting the heart part right. That we cannot on our own. We cannot on our own. We cannot without being born of God. We cannot without God's supernatural help do things with his heart. It's why Christianity is talked about the way that it is. 
John's going to say it later on in chapter 4. He's going to talk about how only those who are born of God can truly love. He's, and again, he's not talking about the way the, the world loves. He's talking about the way God loves. We, 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 we struggle because we, we, we tend to not think about what God's love in full. We've talked about it here a lot. We've talked about it, how love is this idea that, that you want that object of your love to have the best and the highest, to be fulfilled. The, you want to, them to be blessed. And so that's already a struggle for us to do that. But on top of that, there's the other side is who? Who do we love? And the big answer is to say everyone. And that's the easy answer because it's kind of general. But the Bible becomes really annoyingly specific. It says, love your enemies. It says, love strangers. It says, love people who are hurting and in need and who cannot help you back. Love sacrificially, love unconditionally, love always. That's what it says. And we've talked about this before, but it's the thing that we just kind of race by, whether it's at you know, Easter or reading through the Bible, we just race by this and we don't think about this enough. When, when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. He says, Father, forgive them. And to me, this, this is the image that seals for me to know that I cannot even get close to this. Jesus is loving his enemies while they are killing him. Most of us would struggle with doing it after the fact. You know, someone's torturing you, something, and then afterwards, maybe you deal with it, you go through, you know, some counseling, and finally you're like, okay, okay, I can forgive them and move on. It's while it's happening. He's not saying, strike them down. The Gospels tell us he could have called a legion of angels at any moment. He has the power to come off that cross and while his enemies are mocking him and beating him and killing him, all he has in his heart is love for them. If any of you think you can self-generate that, I don't know what to tell you, except maybe you're Jesus, maybe you're the you know, God himself, and you just are visiting with us. Thanks for coming, by the way. Um, make sure you tithe. Um, if God tithes, that's a lot of money. Um, but think about it. That's impossible love. That's not just crazy, radical love. It's impossible love. That only comes Oh, I've heard stories about Christians, non-Christians, others who've done some incredible things. 
but nothing like that. Not even close. That's why John makes sure in his gospel to say again and again and again, Jesus says again and again and again, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. He's not saying it to show off how powerful and tough he is. He's showing it to say that every second of it was him laying down his life. He was never out of control. It was never in the hands of everybody out there. He freely laid down his life. Pretty awesome. But it also reminds me, I'm not wired that way. I get really upset and I don't want to forgive people who do, do far less than that to me. And maybe you guys are a lot more righteous than I am. But if not, you know, you know that when that happens, you know it's something that wasn't there until you we're truly born of God. It's not a great analogy. It's not a great analogy. So, hey, don't, uh, don't send me letters about why you know, it breaks down. But I sometimes think that, that when we become Christians, that, that, that what, what God wants to do through the Spirit is change us at the DNA level. It's not just change our actions, not just change our thought, but change who we are. And that that happens when we're truly born of God. And you might go, well, I don't know that. I'm, or, I'm that way sometimes, but not all the time. Remember, this is the same guy. John is the same guy that just a few verses earlier said, if you say you have no sin, you're, you're a liar. So he knows that we're going to make mistakes. He knows we're not going to get this right. He knows that we're not going to be really good at this. Okay? He knows. But what he keeps asking the people in this church is, but do you know what I'm talking about? The Spirit has revealed to you what I'm talking about. Do you know? And again, that's a dangerous question because a lot of people could have gone, no, I don't know. I don't know that, John. Uh, whatever you're talking about doesn't connect with me. They could have said, let's go follow those other guys. But he's asking it because he so believes that when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're made new, you're transformed, you have the Holy Spirit, God's law is written in your hearts. He so believes that, that he can say, look, even if you're really bad at it, even if you're new at it, even if you've, you've, you've kind of rebelled and fought against it, deep inside your heart, because of what the Spirit's done to you, you know what I'm saying. You know it. He's saying, let's start there. Well, the second part. The second part is what we see in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us 
is that it did not know him. Well, sometimes when we read this, and sometimes when I've, you know, taught it before and didn't really understand it in its context, you know, I would think about, oh, how wonderful, how wonderful. God loves me this way. That's awesome. But if you read what John's writing, God doesn't give you love just so you feel wonderful. God doesn't, as this verse says, lavish love upon you. Pour it out abundantly, as it says in Romans 5. He doesn't do it just so you can receive it and go, it's awesome. We become like God and love like God so that we can love the way he does. We become like God so that we can, we can love like God. We don't receive this because, you know, we're special. We don't receive it and then have this sense of, of power or superiority. No, it's so that, so that we can love with this unconditional, sacrificial, never-failing love. Not just that... We shouldn't just celebrate the fact that we've been loved this way, that we've received it. We should also know that because we've been given it, we have a responsibility then to share it and to show it. And in so doing, we reveal God in this world. And it's that word, or it says, he lavishes it upon us. He lavishes it upon us. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't just kind of get an eyedropper and, and, and knead it out. He lavishes it upon us. What does that tell us? If we're born of God, if we have been transformed and we've been changed and we have His Spirit and God's love is being poured out on us, it means we should be pouring out God's love on this world. It's almost a picture of God like dumping buckets on us and us getting an eyedropper and dropping little drops here and there in the world. And God's going, no, I'm pouring it out on you so you can pour it out on the world. And then he makes it even easier, at least the first steps. He says, let's not even worry about pouring out love on the world. Pour out love on each other. Lavish each other with God's love. Start there. It's a little easier before you go take on people who really hate you who really want you dead, who really don't want you to exist. Let's get it right here. It's a great witness to the world, plus it's a little easier level. If God pours out love, we should pour out love. We should pour it out on one another. I heard, 
you know, I heard this phrase and I get it, I know what it means, and so I thought about using it and I thought about not using it, but I'm going to use it and then I'm going to explain it. But it's this, this phrase someone came out that talked about loving loud. I don't like it because I don't think we should be bragging about how much we love. Okay, so I don't want loving loud to get the wrong idea. But I do like it in this sense. God's love should be abundant in this place, overflowing in this place. Not just love for God, but love for each other. Something amazing is going to happen. You know the, anybody named Nellie? Okay. Negative Nellies? You know people that are always critical and negative of everybody else? You know what happens when God's love floods this place? They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. Who am I going to talk to? Who's going to join me in my gripe party? If anything, people are going to say, hey, you know, you may be right about what's wrong with that person. How can we help them? How can we love them? What are they going through? What are they struggling with? Can we pray for them? You know, a person who has a spirit of negativity, when they're confronted by that consistently, one of two things happens usually. They change. You actually help them because they realize that what they're doing isn't helpful, it's destructive. Or they leave because they can't stand you guys anymore. <laughs> you guys are like, your love is repulsive to them. They can't take it. Think like, I gotta go somewhere where there's other people like me. We become like God. We love like God. And God loves lavishly. We should do the same. The last point. The last point, he talks about, you know, who we are now. He says, make no mistake, if you're born of God, you're a child of God now. Not in the future, right now. But then he says, he's going to appear. He says, when he does, we shall be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. And then he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, if John was writing this to people who weren't children of God, right? If they weren't really children of God, if they hadn't really received at least a, some type of God's nature, then here's what you do, right? You go, oh, wait a minute. When we see him, we'll be like him. So in between time, do whatever I want. Don't really have to care because Jesus is going to take care of it all at the end. Not true for the people who are children of God. When he says this to people who are children of God, hope, hope is not an excuse to wait, but it's a reason to act. It's a reason to act. It's a reason to say, someday, someday he's going to come and all these things that I 
do that I know is in my nature to do now because Jesus has changed me and I'm not doing it as well as I want to do and I'm not consistent and I, I know someday I have this hope that I will be able to do it perfectly, eternally. And so now, now, I'm going to work even harder to know more. I'm going to work even more so that I can be better. It's not an excuse to delay. It says, I'm going to act. I want to be more perfect in how I love. I know I'm never going to be perfect till I see Him, but I'm going to want to be more perfect. I want to know more about what it means to follow Him. I want to study His Word. I want to be His disciple because I know when I study His Word and I know when His Spirit's working in my life, I'll be transformed and I'll keep moving more and more in that direction of being like Him. It's also this sense of gratitude. This gratitude is, look, this is what you've already done for me, Jesus. You've already pulled me out of a, of a world and a mindset of hopelessness and despair, and you've already given me this, and then you promise, someday when I see you, you're gonna give me that out of gratitude for you. I'll do everything I can to represent you well, to be what you've called me to be, to be your disciple. It's not an excuse to wait. It's a reason to act. And what's kind of goofy about this sometimes, and I think it's kind of hitting at the heart of what John is saying, is that if someday when we see him, it says we will be like him, and it's really this idea that we will really be like him, why would you hope for that if you don't want to be like him today? Why would you hope that someday you'll be like him if you don't want to be like him today? Why do you hope that someday you will love your enemies? That you will love sacrificially and unconditionally? Why do you hope for it if you don't want it today? John assumes and I assume, too, that if you're a child of God, you want it today. You wish you could be like Jesus in every way today. And that's why there's hope. And that's why it purifies. That's what I love about this passage. It brings out this great, great truth. We shall be like him. It's hope. It's this message of hope for everyone who's already put their trust in Jesus. For all of those who stand unwavering in their faith. That even when we make mistakes, we keep getting back up. But it also tells us that, that we press on. And that this whole idea of purification isn't a magical thing. It comes through being a true follower of Christ, being his disciple. So I love this. I love this passage. This passage that we looked at today, for those of you who know, like when John says, you know what I'm talking about, 
should bring great joy to you. For those of you who don't know, it, in a different way, in a different way should bring joy to you because you know, you know that Jesus has made another way. And you don't have to be the way that you are. That he has made another way. And it's not just another way. It's not just a better way. It's the best way. He can empower you to love in a way that we can't even fathom. And it'll make all the difference. It'll get the purpose right. And it'll get the axe right.